show, kicking with your torso. Boys getting high and the girls even more so. Wave your hands if you're not with a man. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. I got, you got, we got everybody. I got the gift, gonna stick it in the goal. It's time to move your body. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, I'm super excited for this one. We get to hear from Tessa Niles. Tessa was one of the premier go-to backup singers in the UK in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, honestly. And I kind of want to be... I don't want to be too specific. I don't want to tell you every song she sang on because I want it to be sort of a surprise. When you're listening to this and you're not already familiar with who she is, you might think, oh, that's her. Oh, that's her on that. I mean, I will tell you, she's the one singing here with Robbie Williams on Rock DJ. She also sang with ABC. She had a good relationship with Trevor Horn. She sang with Duran Duran. She uh, toured with um, Eric Clapton. She sang with Steve Winwood. She toured with The Police. She played at Live Aid with Bowie. That's, there's a really funny, cute story about that one, too. And it just goes on and on and on. She played, she sang early on one of her first gigs with, was with former guest Chaz Jenkel, which we're going to talk about here at the end. Anyway, there's just so much. And she has fantastic, interesting stories about Stevie Ray Vaughan, which we kick off with. She was there when he died in that helicopter accident. We kick off the conversation talking about that. Anyway, all of this is available in a book she wrote a couple years ago called Backtrack. It's her memoir. It is so much fun and entertaining. And this is probably true for most books, but if you can, get the audible version because it's so much better when she uh, reads the book because she does the voices and everything. You can really tell where she's coming from even better from the audible version of the book. Anyway, she is such a sweet, fantastic, lady i cannot say it enough and a huge thanks to former guest dolette mcdonald for helping to make this happen all right uh anyway enjoy there's so many rich stories here you're gonna love it she called me from her home in london okay so there's a million things from your book from your life that i want to ask you about i i hate to start on somewhat of a macabre note but one of the stories that really grabbed me and shocked me to be honest was the stevie ray vaughn story and i know that's a sad one but let's get it out of the way because it's just it blew my mind so my understanding from reading your book is that at, so you were there you were singing at the event that he was singing at with eric clapton and at the end everyone gets in helicopters and he gets in yours and then comes out, it gets pulled out at the last second and pulled into the one that was the tragic helicopter. Please, ex please tell us this. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. It was a foggy night and it was the second of two nights that we'd done at this particular venue. 
And uh, we had flown the previous day in by helicopter and flown back that night back into Chicago. And uh, this was the last night, and we were all absolutely elated because the gigs had been phenomenal, just yeah. just extraordinary. Robert Cray and Clapton and Stevie Ray Vaughan on, all on the same stage. I mean, it was just you know, the dream team. It was just beautiful. But the crew were very keen to get us back on the choppers because there was, the fog was bad. Uh-huh. So they were you know, worried that uh, visibility wouldn't be good. So we had about five choppers, I think, to, to carry you know, the immediate band and, and a few others, I think the accountants and some security. But there was uh, a spare seat going because Nathan East had a friend who was a, 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 a flight enthusiast and he had his own plane. And unusually, we were, we were sort of split up and Nate was allowed to go with his friend back uh, back to which almost never happened, you know, because right. they, they had to keep the band traveling together. But anyway, on this particular night, uh, Nathan wasn't there, so Stevie Ray Vaughan had a seat to come back with us. And I remember sitting in, in the chopper with Katie Kassoon, my, my singing partner, and I could see the kind of the, the, the fog was, was building up around us, and there was a definite uh, thrust to get us going. Sure. Um, and the tour manager said, Okay, Stevie, you get in this one. And Stevie climbed in between Katie and I. And, um, you know, we bantered a bit and we were just waiting to take off. Then all of a sudden, Tom and just said, actually, no, Stevie, scratch that. You'll get in the one behind. So he left. And as he left, he said, sorry, ladies, um, you know, won't be having the pleasure of your company on the, on the travel home. And, and that was it. And the rest, it's chilling, actually, speaking yes. about it now because... Yes. Stevie's helicopter was the one that went down and he was killed outright, very, very close to the actual gig itself. I mean, on the site of the gig. Really? He didn't, so they didn't get very far. No, they didn't get very far. It was, they, the, the blades were caught in a ski lift. Oh. Um, wires. Oh, horrendous. I mean, not even probably a minute. um, Wow. Out of the gig. So it was, it was horrendous. And we, you know, we got back in our individual helicopters and the limos were waiting for us at the airport. And, you know, we were kind of whisked back to the hotels yeah. as we, you know, nearly always were. That was the same. I didn't go to the bar to hang out that night. I went straight to bed. And it was actually Dolette that woke me up in the morning. She was driving and she heard on the radio that members of uh, Clapton's band had gone down. And at that point, they didn't know who had actually been killed. And I just remember her saying, oh, my God, thank God, thank God, thank God. And, and she just said, look, I think you need to get on the phone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and she said, that, you know, that there's talk about uh, something's happened. And I said, no, honey, I'm fine. You know, don't worry. Um, I'm sure I would know if something had happened. Sure. And I got up, uh, sort of bleary-eyed, and walked towards the bathroom, and I saw underneath the door that, there were, I, I thought it was a white doormat, yeah. but it was actually notes that had been passed under the door, and then I knew, I knew something had happened. Didn't yeah. you say in the book too that there was hesitation about taking uh, helicopters or traveling in helicopters beforehand? Well, I personally had real oh. concerns about traveling in a helicopter. Yeah, um, it was unusual. I 
don't think I remember in the sort of 12 odd years that I was with Clapton, us really doing it, huh. traveling wow. that way. So perhaps there were, you know, underlying fears, but this, you know, this was not yeah. one of those occasions. Um, I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think you could pay me enough to wow. get in one again. They're very disconcerting. I don't know if you've ever been in, in a helicopter. I never have. You're fine. Scarily uh, close to the ground. Sure. And how many famous people have died in small plane or helicopter accidents? You know right? what I mean? It's Absolutely. so tragic. We lost, you know, yeah. Kobe Bryant last year and everything. Oh, oh, yeah. it, no, it's, it's awful, awful, awful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was an investigation and, um, you know, it, it, it was terrible. It was, it was uh, Stevie that went down and lost his life. It was Colin, who was part of the security team, and Nigel, who was also uh, Eric's bodyguard, and Bobby Brown, who was the accountant. Oh. Yeah, when I read that, I i mean, there's a million things that you've been witness to or songs you've sung on or whatever. But when I, I, I was not expecting that story and that blew me away. Oh, um, okay. so anyway, okay. I want to, I want to kind of touch on that first. Now, yeah, I'm yeah. frankly sort of, sort of surprised that you're back in the UK because the book ends with you very happily retiring <laughs> from music to South Africa with your new husband, not new at that point, but you know, your husband, family, and contentment and now yeah. here you are back in the uk what what sparked this well we had 10 amazing years in south africa and the reason we went in the first was was really it was my time to support my husband he'd uh, supported me for so many years in, in my career but then you know, i had kids and i was beginning to you know think seriously about not going on the road anymore yeah. and the opportunity came up to move to south africa and we took it and it just seemed like I love new chapters. You know, I, 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 my biggest fear is repetition, I think, in life. I hate kind of doing the same thing uh, over and over again. So this was a real opportunity to do something different and actually also to have the privilege of being a mom and, yeah. and, and bringing up kids, you know, right. which was wonderful. How old are your twins now? 23. Oh. I can't believe I'm even saying that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So it was a real privilege to be a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, yeah. After what I'd done all my life. I mean, it was an adjustment, definitely, sure. not to be working in the industry. But I did take that time to do all sorts of different things, actually. I um, I started a, a project in, in the township. Really? In the local township to me. I kind of wanted to situate myself, and I began to work in a in a kitchen. In a, in a school, but uh -huh. because kids in South Africa are not given a meal yeah. at school, so very often they come to school hungry. And um, a kitchen was built in this particular place near me, and I went and just helped out, basically dishing out food. And then somebody said to me one day, "Well, um, you know, are you any good at art? Can you sew?" And I was like, "Well, sort of arty. Yes, can't sew, but what do you want me to do?" And then after that, you know. The, Never say yes immediately uh -huh. because, <laughs> but actually, I was I was very grateful. I was drawn into this thing, and I ended up running um, a skills development project for women from the township um, for two years. Wow, good for you. Well, yes, in a way, but you know what? When you're in a, in a country that has that kind of poverty, true, true, me well, sitting at yes. home doing nothing and, and you know twiddling my thumbs wouldn't have been 
yeah. uh, wouldn't have been great. So it yeah. was a, a learning curve for me, but it was wonderful. I loved yeah. it. I'm just imagining you, you know, scooping up food for people with like a hairnet on totally. and like, a, you know, an uh, apron and just thinking I was at Live Aid. What am I? What am I doing? You know, but uh, that's such a rich. What a great! It's great that you've had. It's great that anybody gets both sides of the coin to see the heights that you've had and the other side of life like that. It's important. So I what is? Uh, and I think it makes for a rich, full life. That's it. Because yes. only one side of it. Yeah, it's it's again, it's a privilege and an honor, but um, yeah. You know, yeah, the balance I agree. Is, is really, really what you want. So are you guys like, uh, what's a, are you back in the UK for Eduardo's job or are you going to start singing again? I have no idea. What are you up to? Well, we came back uh, 10 years later. Oh, okay. Um, because our kids were getting to an age where they were going to be starting high school. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, they were already in high school, but they were going on to, sort of, you know, the final years. And we kind of had to make a decision about where they were, they saw their future, you know, because uh-huh. they, they went to an international, American international school in Johannesburg. So they could have kind of gone that route and, and gone on to, yeah. to work probably in the States. But we decided to come back to the UK and uh, we've been here, gosh, six years now. Again, okay. I mean, it's unbelievable. But when I got back, I had this real, real hunger to work yeah. and do some stuff. So myself and a girlfriend, Gina Foster, who's also a session singer, got together a lot and we talked about our industry and we talked about things like um, 20 Feet from Stardom. Yes. Which was the first time I had ever heard backing singers, background singers heralded in any shape or form because so often we are not mentioned, which is, you know, if you want to get me angry, if you want to see me angry, you know, Forget to mention the vacuum singers. Yeah. In fact, I watched the most amazing, beautifully made documentary the other night uh, on Motown. Fairly I've recent, I would have thought. Did yes, you see I've it? seen this one. Oh, so good. So, so good. But John. Yes. No. No. Don't and I was fuming because they mentioned the wreck, you know, the, the guys, the wrecking crew and all those yes. guys who, you yes. know, worked in the studio and made those records and they went into such kind of forensic detail. Yeah. And it was amazing. But towards the end, I was like, come on. Yeah. What about the Andantes? Yeah. The Andantes were a three girl group who, who worked. I think they performed on over 80% really? of Motown hits. Oh, John. I've if, never if heard of them uh, until you just uh, said this. Uh, come on. <laughs> If your listeners are not familiar, look up the Andantes. They're still I will. talk about unsung. It is, you know, and and I know that they actually were the voices instead of some of the Ooh, artists. Yes. And and to not mention them in terms of, I mean, you can't listen to Heard It Through the Grapevine. No. Without those oh. BBs. No. No. You look up what they were, the, the, the hits that they've sung on, and yes. it is... So here, here I am on my soapbox, but I think, uh, you know, this was one of the things that Gina and I discussed a lot, that 20 Feet from Stardom was amazing. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, backing things were being talked about. And I love Lisa Fisher. She's a good friend. And there are so many people on there that I just was so pleased to see yeah. finally heralded. 
Um, but it occurred to Gina and I that, okay, where are the Brits? Yeah. You know, these the Americans and they're amazing and yes, mm-hmm. uh, but where are the Brits? So we thought, well, we should kind of do our own thing. to do, And so we called it The Brits Behind the Hits. Nice. And we've, <laughs> and we've written a show. Yeah. It's called Unsung Singers, The Brits Behind the Hits. And we've written a show and it's like a, a review, really. There are four session singers nice. and we talk about the hits that we've sung on. We talk about the, the TV commercials. We go back to the 50s. We talk about the history of British backing singing and how it evolved and, and where it is now. And um, it's a real kind of nostalgic show. Um, and, and we obviously sing, you know, we, we sing the music that we sure. performed on, that we're lucky enough sure. to, to perform on. So the one thing that I would say about 20 Feet from Stardom that didn't resonate with me was that a lot of it was about poor me, I should have been a star. That goes against your philosophy on being a background singer. Mine is, and I remember Lisa Fisher writing a quote, which I think is so true. People people think that being a backing singer, somehow you, it's not a very worthy job, somehow, you know. Oh, you missed out on being the solo artist, that's why you're a backing singer. But I think what people forget is that, you know, we are there because we love playing the supporting role, because that's actually what we do best. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some misconceptions around what I do. Very interesting. Yeah, you make it very clear throughout the book, actually, that singing backup is what you wanted to do. That was your, that's the value you feel you bring to these people. That's not an aspiration. I'm not just doing this until I can get my own career going. That's the career you sought. Right. Right. It it was never a means to an end for me. Not to say I didn't try early on and and have a solo career, but it didn't really fit for whatever reason. Perhaps I didn't have that kind of killer instinct that you really do need that, that motivation to kind of push yourself forward into the spotlight. My joy was always you know, being with an artist and making them sound as, as good as I possibly could yeah. and give them the support that oh, best show in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say then, I mean, the ABC lexicon of love poster being behind you, would you say that date stamp was the first thing that really kind of put you on the map? Yes, I'm dead, stand. 
Is that after date stamp or people coming to you saying, I want the girl who's on date stamp. I want whatever that is. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do. And that's normally how it works with records because, you know, in, in, those were the days when you'd have credits on the back and, sure. you know, you'd buy the album and you'd read all, all the credits on the back. Yeah. Um, but this actually was quite funny because it's the only credit um, that I ever had in my maiden name, which is Webb. Yes. So if, even if people did kind of read it, they probably thought, well, who the heck is she? You know, there's another Tessa on the scene, but it's clearly not her. Um, <laughs> but it was a great shock window for me. Yeah. It was when people yeah. did begin to read, particularly producers, because I think they were the ones that were paying probably the most attention. Um, yeah. And it, it was the first, it was the first number one album I ever sang on. Yeah. And I remember I got paid a hundred pounds for the session to do the session, which I thought was a fortune in gems at the time. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. But also, I um, the, 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 the album got to number one, and they hadn't paid me. The record company hadn't paid me. So being the kind of bolshy, you know, arrogant young person that I, I guess I was to a degree, I walked into the record company and I sat in the reception. And I said to the receptionist, I'm not leaving. Until you pay me my hundred quid, right? Until you pay me my hundred quid. <laughs> and I made a nuisance of myself for a couple of hours. And then finally she came out sheepishly with a check and kind of said, right, on your way. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's great. I can't imagine doing that now. That There'd be many times when I felt like doing that. Sure, that sure. Thing, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, my listeners know that uh, Trevor Horn is my very favorite producer ever. And uh, yes, I love everything he's done. And I've never spoken to him. I've tried. Maybe it'll happen eventually. But I've talked to so many people who've worked with him, like Gary Langan and mm -hmm. Andy Richards and Bruce Woolley and Dave Bascom and Julian Mendelssohn oh, wow. and all these, yeah, yeah all these yes. people. Because just to get, I just love that music. What's your take on? Uh, I. It strikes me that Trevor. He approaches music almost like as a mad scientist, for better or worse. Now, everything that comes out is great, but it takes a while to get there. And uh, he's kind of striving for a sound, and maybe he knows what it is in his head. Maybe he doesn't. He's hoping you come up with something. You help show him the way. Is that what it's like, working with him? Oh, yeah, very much so. But one has to remember that I normally come in towards the end of a project. True, good point. So, you know, the track is pretty much together. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got this yeah. full track to, to, to sing on. But I think you're right. I think your observations are absolutely right. He's, um, he has this extraordinary sound in his head that he carries yeah. with him. But he's not autonomous in that sense um, of not wanting. He absolutely loves and welcomes ideas and creative yeah. input from people. He's definitely not the kind of producer that says, right, I want you to sing here, yeah. only sing this line, and then we'll repeat it in the next. He's very, very open to ideas, although he has a clear idea of kind sure. of the overview of, of where he would like you to perform. But that was always the challenge for me and, and always the beauty of working with Trevor was that I would he wouldn't be just impressed by my standard box of tricks. Yeah. You know, he'd he'd say, right, okay, impress me, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, literally say that, but right. I knew that that's what he was thinking. So every time I, I, I worked for him and, uh, you know, we, we'd hit a chorus and didn't matter whether it was Grace Jones or 
or uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood or whoever it was or yeah. Seal, he would welcome that input because for him, there might be a little thing in there that you might do, a little uh-huh. hook, a little bit of magic that he could Trevor Hornize. Yeah. That's and it. take, I mean, he might run it backwards or he might spin it or loop it or whatever he chose to do. But that might be something that would create some magic for him. Yeah. So of course we all we all want to please Trevor. He's right. he's the best. Right. Sense. Now you met it's interesting you mentioning about uh have, being able to put in your own input. My understanding from the book, so Nile Rogers is my third favorite producer of all time. And my hey. yes, and I got the impression hey. from your book that the beginning of Notorious, that no no part, was your idea. my idea it was definitely already there as part of the chorus okay but <laughs> or to start the song with it or whatever no that was that was his idea yeah yeah okay. all, all okay. of that was Nile okay. for sure okay. um but a bit that i did come up with which is kind of illustrates what i was talking about about trevor and, and great producers they're they're looking for those little things that can just add something that maybe the listener doesn't always you know, maybe they're not always conscious of yeah, yeah. when they hear the, fi- the finished version. But if you play Notorious in the chorus, actually, I think I did it in the second verse. Okay. I, there's an, a sharp intake of breath. So I think Simon sings, girls will keep the secret. And I go, <gasps> Really? So there's like this sound. Yes. And that, that was there, and Niall kept it. I don't know why I did it. I can't remember now whether he asked me to or whether it was just something that I came up with. But then he put it into the into the intro as well. Wow. So, again, it's one of those little gems that wow. you probably wouldn't know, but if you go back and listen to it, okay. you hear it. Okay. Oh, that's great. Now, speaking of Duran Duran, you on Come Undone, I, is that maybe your most famous bit of vocal vocalization on tape is that it do you think
a really good question i think maybe it is john yeah maybe. i think so just because it's it you know it's a step out role yeah. yeah so often you know something i love to achieve when working in the studio for other artists is that kind of seamless invisible wall of comfort behind yeah. the artist so you know the more more of a blend and the more you it doesn't stick out the better yeah, yeah right you know that to me was was a successful session was was working on those kinds of vocals. But there's no doubt that on that particular track, I had the absolute joy of stepping out. And I remember it so well, the session, because Warren Cucurello was in the band at the time. And, and I love Warren. I think he's he was an extraordinary asset to the band musically. Yes. I think yes. he kind of raised their game an awful totally. lot. And he was the right guy for them at that time. Completely. Bring them through Completely. the 90s. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very much so. And I remember that they had set up the studio in Warren's living room in, a, uh, in South London in a small, relatively small terraced house. And they, I remember there was a lava lamp in the living room and it, the rest of it was kind of really dark. And I went in and started singing and they were, Nick and, uh, and Warren were kind of directing me. And, and uh, I sang, you know, there was like, asking me to come up with ideas for the chorus. And so I sang a few things and did a few ideas. And then Nick said, well, how would it be if you unleash being a diva? And I said, really? Are you giving me permission? Because yes. So everything I'd been doing prior to that on, on the chorus was quite soft, quite yeah. floaty, sort of ethereally. And when uh, Nick suggested that, I was like, okay, Think I know what to do, and so I just kind of gave it some a little bit more edge, really, and they liked it. Yeah, yes, that's the. I mean, your singing on that song is kind of the. I don't know if the hook's the right word, but that's the that's the part people remember. You know what I mean? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yes. it's definitely an add-on hook to yes. the chorus. Yeah, yeah. If it, it so, you hesitated when I asked that question. If it's not come undone. What do you think is the thing that people would most recognize you for? Oh, that's a really good question. I wish I had my uh, sort of top 10. And again, whether or not they would recognize it's me 
is debatable right. because right. that's kind of not the remit. Sure. In a way, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think people might remember from live around the Live Aid time, the, the track Dancing in the Streets. Yeah, that was another Boeing one that I... And, which, yeah. and I did that with another lady called Helena Springs. Yep. Um, I think a lot of the Trevor stuff, if you listen to it, you know, there are some quite quirky BVs in there. But that's a, that's a question I've never been asked. And oh, I, really? I go back. Huh. Yeah, think I mean, about that. there are bigger songs. Maybe, like maybe what's, love got, what's that? Yeah, well, yeah. Yes, yes. As, that's true. The dates, it's just... You know, you you're so careful to blend into the background, but bring something by bl in your blending. But there's not a there's only a few that I could find anyway. Times where you get even just a few minutes to shine, or a few you know you step out in front for a second and date stamp and come undone are a couple of the bigger ones. Yeah, um, yeah. And what's so, love got to do with it? I think I think also your listeners might be interested to to hear that very often. You know, there were sort of two types of backing vocals in a way. That wall-to-wall, tracked, multi-layered, lush kind of thick sound. But alternatively, occasionally the producer would just want you to double the melody. And there'd be a single voice in there. Or maybe a double tracked voice. And case in point is what's left up to do with it. of your hand makes my folks react that it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl opposites attract it's physical only logical you must try to ignore that it means more than Who needs a heart? 
they're really not that evident. But at the end, you can kind of hear Tina drops out, her voice drops out a little bit, and you can sort of hear the BBs, but they're very subtle. True. Really subtle. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. You're right. There's different ways of approaching it. Um, I was going to save this for later, but you brought up Live Aid and Dancing in the Street. And we, I was, so as I mentioned, I was just watching the clip before hopping on with you. And a couple of things. Number one, I just, I was taken with you specific. Of course, I'm watching the clip again and I'm watching you specifically. And I'm just thinking, here's Tessa. I'm assuming having to act as if this is not a big deal. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're performing in front of at Wembley stadium in front of however many thousands of humanity. Yes. (laughs) And yes, everyone's on stage having a good time, but I'm, I mean, you're only like five years into your career at this point, four or five years and you, but you have to act like you belong there. And that has to have been, to be professional and do your job, but also while inside, just, I can't believe what I'm doing right now. That had to be going on with you. Oh, completely. I mean, <laughs> of course, one had to look, you know, totally cool as if one did this every day. Uh-huh. to hang out with all the big stars every day, which wasn't true. Yes. Um, and so you had to have that kind of facade that, um, that this was a commonplace thing for you. But inside... I was absolutely literally melting. And I had to keep pinching myself. My God, you know, I'm a kid from Maidstone in Kent in in England, and here I am working with all these amazing people. And I think, you know, I I recognised early on that there's so much luck involved. Yes, I had great ears. I had a great voice. You know, I could sing and do that. But a lot of other people did too. Sure. Yeah. You know, so the fact that I had, you know, placed myself to be chosen for this, did I place myself or was it, you know, 50% luck? Yeah. It just, you got plucked out of it. And they, you guys sing Rebel Rebel on your request, right? I like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I alluded to the fact that my maiden name was Webb. Uh-huh. And so when I was at school, around about the time of Rebel Rebel, my school friends would serenade me with Webel Webel. <laughs> so that became kind of my theme song. So when, when I got to rehearsals uh, with Bowie and he, you know, sat us all down and said, okay, you know, I'm open to ideas for, for a song list. Uh-huh. I was like a human Labrador. I bounded <laughs> forward and I was like, yes, we've got to do Rebel Rebel. I didn't tell him why. Yes, but, yes. Um, but he kind of said, yeah, yeah, that's that's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, 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 why not? And 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 we ended up doing it. And I like to think it was partially me that swung. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. You planted the I, seed and nothing like else. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. Did he mess up your name on the introductions? It sounded like he said Teresa Spring, which he did. That's okay. exactly what he did. Bless him. He was a bit flummoxed, you know, yeah. at the end. This whole thing was put together so quickly. Right. He hadn't right. worked with uh, a lot of us before. Yeah. You know, we were, we were, I think we kind of formed a tight unit over f- about five days rehearsal, which is nothing. Yeah. And he forgot my name. Yeah. 
I kind of laughed it off. Uh, my mother, however, oh. Oh. was mortified. She was yeah. like, oh, my God, it's not my daughter's name. <laughs> I laughed it off. You know, it's one of those things that happens. But we came off stage, and the very first thing Bowie said was, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I messed up your name. I'm just so sorry. Oh, that's nice. Wasn't that nice? That is nice. And it's not like anyone knew there would be YouTube 36 years later or whatever for us to, you know, capture that moment forever. True. And and I think at first, when people would first bring that up after it happened, it was a bit raw and I was like, you know, a little bit peeved. But now I think it is actually a talking point. It is. It really is. Yep. It's a story that wouldn't be there otherwise. Yeah. You know, we need these kind of, you know, rock and roll stories, don't we? Absolutely. It's it's the mistakes and all of that kind of thing that people remember most, actually. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. um, I've I've had Kevin Armstrong on here a couple of times and Matthew Mm -hmm. Seligman on here a couple of times before he passed away from COVID. And, uh, you know, they've talked about that moment, too. and, And the recording of Dancing in the Street, which I believe was, what, later that night? Or the next day or something in it was the day before the day before the that's concert. it yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the day before and uh yeah it was all done <laughs> off the cuff you know nothing yeah. was planned and i think that's the thing about being a session musician is that sometimes when i'm coaching kind of young singers coming up who'd like to get into session singing they ask me what's the most important skill you know one can have and I think other than, you know, having a great set of ears and, and being sure. a great vocalist is to be able to work with very little instruction. Yeah. To be able to kind of just do it. You know, to know your musical history, to have that compendium of knowledge that you can always draw from in any style, genre, key, whatever, whatever. But definitely to be able to just go, just do yeah. stuff. Yeah. I think... Also, there's a misconception sometimes that certain artists will sit down with you before, you know, as you go to work for them right at the beginning, that they will sit down and they will teach you the parts or tell you where they want you to sing. Not in my experience. Really? (laughs) Um, I don't think Eric ever sat down with me and and said, right, I want you to sing the third above harmony here. It was just expected Mm -hmm. that we would know. Yeah, yeah. Have or that they, they probably they probably just the artist probably kind of flits in and out and assumes maybe the producer will take care of that kind of stuff. Well, right? possibly in the studio, yes, but in a yeah. live situation, True, it's, yeah. it's definitely you've got to to know what you're doing, and you know, sure, ask questions if you're not sure, but um, but definitely working with very little instructions probably going to be on my tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's the the queen of uh the queen of figuring it out on the spot um, <laughs> i think it's a good skill I yeah i think say. you're right i think you're right um okay let me see here uh we should talk about the police mm. well first of all before actually before we do you mentioned earlier your brief solo career there's the president's girl which oh. i tr- i couldn't find on youtube i was trying to listen to what your solo single was like yeah. Um, interesting. <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was it was fun at the time, but I don't think, because I didn't really have that artist's mentality, I wasn't really driving. Mm. 
if you see what I mean. Yes, I do. I, you know, I was given songs and kind of liked them and, yeah, didn't didn't have that artist's uh, point of view. Yeah, drive so do it all I on think, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so you know, I, I think they're fun and I'm, I'm proud of them, but looking back at them now, I don't think they were saying a lot about uh-huh. me as okay. an artist. Okay. <laughs> I think it took me decades to kind of figure that out because I wasn't like really born with it. Mm-hmm. I, maybe it's Maybelline. I don't know. Um, it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just, we're all so different, aren't we? Yeah. And well, it looks like you slotted in exactly where you wanted to be, where you thought you I think, could. I think once yeah. I found it, yeah. that was it. I wasn't going anywhere. That was my, that yeah. was my thing. And, and, you know, I made it work. You did. Me. Um, we have some Patreon supporters and I always put it out to them who I'm talking to and allow them to submit some questions if they want. A couple of people responded for you. And one of them, Matthew Quinlan wanted to know specifically about the solo career. Was that, was it your idea? Was it a label coming to you saying, we think we can do something here? What was, you know, what was the motivation, I guess, for going into the solo career? Was that a, was that you thinking, let's try this? Or was that a label thinking, let's try this? Firstly, thank you, Matthew, for the question. I don't often really speak that much about my solo career because it kind of uh, didn't last too long. But it is an interesting aspect of, uh, you know, that helped me figure out where I was going. It was definitely part of the journey. And I think it was just expected that I would make solo records. Why? I'm not sure. I was married to my producer. And I think I was fortunate to have people around me who believed in me. I I always say that to young singers coming up, find your tribe, you know, find people that believe in you, Mm -hmm. uh, build that team. And and I was so fortunate to have those people. But my heart probably just wasn't in it enough. Okay. Um, That album never came out, Sorry? Oh, I'm sorry. That album never came out, right? Not really, no. I think the company sadly folded oh. just before the album was due to be released. Some of the tracks are kind of fun, a bit quirky. I should, I, but I, I, for all the fact that I was a singer, I hadn't really found my voice. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. You know, that's what an artist has. They have that voice. Yeah. Whether it's in their songwriting, whether it's in their production, whether it's in their actual physical voice. But I was in some ways just being kind of led along mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and wasn't driving it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. By the way, I wanted to ask one question. In the, near the beginning of the book, when your singing career first takes off with Shades of Love, that girl group. <laughs> Somebody's done my homework. Oh, my (laughs) God. I read your book twice. It was easy. It was on Audible, and I played it at double speed, but I loved it. (laughs) Um, You quit. And when you say it, you say it so nonchalantly, like, yeah, I decided to leave the girl group. And I I wondered if Richard, your first husband, had Richard Niles, we should say, had anything to do with that. Or I'm just thinking, isn't doesn't a young singer aspire to exactly what's happening to you at that moment? Why would you quit? I mean, it worked out obviously, but it seems like you finally got what you wanted and then you decide I'm going to 
run off with Richard or something. I don't know what the thinking was. And it is a question that I wish I kind of knew the answer to fully. I can allude to the answer because it's a pattern that has continued throughout my life. Hmm. Whether or not the timing was always right and whether it was a great decision, you know, is debatable. But I've always felt I just had maybe this sort of sixth sense that I'm not going to achieve a great deal more if I stay here. Mm. It's time to move on. And I suppose that also speaks to the fact that I was fortunate enough to have been imbued maybe from childhood with a lot of self-belief. Mm. That's amazing. You know, and I... I I don't really know where that comes from, John. I, uh, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. But I think it's served me well. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are some things that I probably could have done better, maybe hung on a bit longer. But, yeah, I've always felt that I needed to take the next step. Huh. And it sounds like you knew when it was time to make that step. I mean, it doesn't sound like there were a lot of regrets to end the music career and move to South Africa. You just kind of know when a chapter is over and when the new chapter is beginning. I love new chapters. I actually yeah. embrace it. I love change. Yeah. As I said sort of before, yeah. you know, the idea of, of hell for me is just doing the, doing same, the same thing, thing all the time. I, yeah. You know, it can be uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not, it's not easy, but um, I love that chance to reinvent do new stuff. I think, you know, it, it used to be in uh, times gone by that people were encouraged to be polymaths. Mm -hmm. You know, they were encouraged to be musicians, but also scientists yeah. and, you know, and, and cre creativity and, and, and all, so all manner of things were possible by the same person. Yeah. And I do think that they're all branches of the same tree. And I love to explore uh, and do different things. And uh, I was fortunate to have had many decades doing the thing that I felt I did best. Yes. But yes. since then, gosh, there's a big world out there, you know, to try to try new things. I never felt like a one-trick pony. I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I always felt there's so many other things to do, you know, and explore. That's uh, your you're blessed to feel that way because some of us like me have a giant fear of, you know, the unknown or not knowing how to do something or a, of too much change or whatever, like anxiety. Did you have that when you were younger? Did you have that when you were younger too? It, no, I don't think so. I think it's, uh, it's come upon, it's come about more since I've been older. Maybe it's because of the, well, we're getting into me now, but it, maybe it's because no, no, of I being the, being the, dad and having to like you know worry about a job and pay the yes. bills and you know what i'm saying there's uh and the older you get i that's one of the <laughs> so we're getting into it this is one of the reasons why i started the podcast was because there was getting to i was getting to that point in life where a big part of my brain was being eaten up with this sense of like well here you are you're 40 years old what did you do you didn't do the things you thought you were going to do you didn't you're, you didn't accomplish the things you thought you were going to accomplish. Now you're, you have a wife and kids. It's too late to take big risks. It's too late to do the thing that you wanted to do. You're stuck. And, uh, 
thankfully starting the podcast and interviewing people I love like you eats up, it takes up the space that was being filled with that voice. Does that make sense? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Really? And I applaud you for doing that because, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship. I need you, you need me. And as you say, in turn, it just feeds something in you. It nourishes your soul. It does. It does. It's become my little creative outlet that I didn't think, I didn't even know I needed, but I'm so grateful that I have. Yeah, yeah. And people speak so highly of you. Oh, thank you. Colette was just, you know, singing your praises. So you're doing a lot right. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's brought a lot of joy to my life, for sure. Mm. Okay, let's see. Um, We should talk about the police. That was your first, you were a, you were a touring virgin, as you say. This was the first major tour you <laughs> went on. I think you did. If you didn't, that's what I wrote down. I don't know why I'd write it down. No, I, I, I pretty much was. Oh, uh-huh. my word. Yeah, that yeah. was. <sighs> Seemingly, things happen very quickly or, or have done to me. You know, it's kind of almost like no time to, to be worried or fearful. As well, which helps, you know, uh, there's too uh, much time and we all start to, you know, have right. those demons at work. And uh, yeah, I, I had a call. Yeah, it's a funny story, actually, because there was a lady, there is a lady called Marsha Hunt. And Marsha Hunt is an actress. She's very, very accomplished. She's an author. She's done some extraordinary things. Uh, and she was also uh, the face of the original 60s musical Hair. Oh. So if you ever see those those great posters. Which sure, that's her. Afro, that's yeah. Marsha. No way. That's Marsha. And um, she and my husband at the time, this was 1982, something like that. Something like that. Uh, yeah, 82, 83, something like that. Were good friends. And one day she called up Richard and said, listen, can Tessa get down to the rehearsal studio? Uh, police are going on tour and they'd like to audition her. <laughs> so <laughs> that was it. I threw on my ripped jeans and my shoulder padded stripy shirt, <laughs> ran down to this rehearsal studio that same day, literally, no time to think about it. Walked in unannounced, no one there to greet me. You know, just a nervous wreck. And I remember hearing the strains of, I think it was Roxanne playing through this steel door, kind of yanked open this steel door. And I walked through and they were in the like final throes of, of playing Roxanne. And I just kind of stood there. And I thought, what the hell am I supposed to do now? I have to speak to these people. I mean, there's like three rock stars, not even, not even one. Yeah. Somehow I plucked up the courage and I just said hi you know introduce myself and uh, and they and Sting said actually um listen do you want to come to my house and have a sing tomorrow afternoon I was like yes okay bye <laughs> and that was kind of it I left and thought what happened there and then I think someone from the label or from the management called me up and said right be at this address tomorrow and so I went and had a little sing, as uh-huh. Sting liked to call it, uh-huh. which was my audition. Uh-huh. And then five days later, I was on a, I was on Concord, flying to. Where did we start? I think we, I think we started the tour in Atlanta, and that was the final police tour, the synchronicity tour. Yeah. 
And it was baptism by fire. I mean, I was a tall virgin. I knew nothing. And again, had to assume that I, you know, about me that that did. Wow. And no vibrato, right? That was, uh, that was the, the mandate. No vibrato. No vibrato. (laughs) Hardest gig ever I've ever done in my life. And also really, um, important because I ended up losing my voice at the end of six months due to singing with no vibrato, full tilt every night, singing as hard as possible. And you know, vibrato helps kind of protect your chords in many ways and, and help, you know, there's lubrication there. And there wasn't any because we were just singing full out with dry ice machines every night. And it was crazy. Um, but it was a great lesson for me to actually know my voice as well. yeah. and to know that maybe I'd say no next time or maybe I'd say, hmm, okay, well, I can try that. Maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle, Yeah, you know, because I, I had threatened my voice really, basically. Right. Could have lost it. You, uh, you mentioned what uh, kind of intimidating figure Sting is. And, and I, uh, I recently talked with a guy named Jeffrey Lee Campbell, who was the guitarist his guitarist, oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes, his guitarist oh, on that uh, the tour after Nothing Like the Sun. And he kind of paints a similar picture. And it's almost as if I get the impression Sting knows that he has this effect on people and kind of plays it up a little bit, that he wants to put you on your toes, like, oh, I don't know. And the, But he's a warm guy, ultimately, but he likes to toy with your feelings and your stress that way. Couldn't put it better myself. That's really? exactly that's exactly my experience. Was that he's interesting because he was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. He has a little bit Good of that point. school teacher kind of vibe about him. You know, a little bit like, but yeah. it's it's a front, and and he he breaks it down, and, and he's as warm as the next person. But it's, it's definitely there initially. Intimidating. Yeah. Hell yes. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, that's what it seems like. Now, so closely, I think. After this, you go on with uh, with Eric, and we should talk about Eric. There's a lot of you're a part of a lot of interesting things. We already talked about Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, I was watching the clips of you guys performing "Tears in Heaven" at the Unplugged show. You know, that song is a beautiful song. And like a lot of songs, I hate to admit, when they get overplayed, they lose 
some of what their power, they lose what you forget what they were really about in the first place. And after reading your book and going back and watching those clips and I'm projecting onto him and you and the rest of the band, the gravity of what that song really means and why it matters that he's performing it right then. And it really, I'm getting all goosebumpy. It becomes a much more profound experience when you think about all of that. And um, it's a beautiful moment. It sounds to me like Eric has gone up and down in dealing with some of the demons in his life. Would you say you've had mostly positive experiences working with Eric over the long haul? Oh, yes, 100%. Interestingly, the timing of working with Eric was essentially he'd come through so much with his battle with drugs and alcohol. So much so that I don't think I ever saw Eric Dunn in the 12 years that I worked with him. No, I think he'd come through that and he was getting enormous comfort and support from his AA meetings that he would do around the world, wherever we were. And I think he had a huge support network to help him through that. But ultimately, you know, it was all, it was down to him. And he, yeah, I joined at a very, very positive moment. His career was also kind of back on the up. Yep, yep. Roger Forrester had taken over as his manager and was really quite, uh, you know, influential in, in Eric's rise. And that was when Eric had decided to use what I consider to be the dream team of musicians, Steve Ferroni, Greg Fillingaines, Nathan East. Doesn't get much better than uh, those three. Okay. Well, that's got to be the holy trinity, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Just phenomenal. And, and uh, myself and Katie Kassoon joined um, shortly after, and it was the most phenomenal band. It really yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, I recently talked to Marcy <laughs> Levy. Marcella Detroit, yeah, who had been with do you. Are you guys friendly or whatever? She's because, my predecessor. Yes, that's what I was going to say. I didn't piece it together until getting ready to talk to you that she had been Eric's Tessa for many years before you came along. And I wondered if there was, I don't know, she was, she's great. Marcella Detroit. She went on to be in Shakespeare's sister and stuff like that. But um, oh, such hugely talented. And we've swum in the same waters. But yeah. our paths have never actually crossed. And I'm really? really sad because I have a feeling we'd be besties. Yeah, she's a great lady. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wondered what the overlap with there was. Uh, so he uh, just, it was time for a new band, new backup singers. and Yeah, I don't know in. about the, t- the exact timing, but it was, I think, now I know Marcy did Live Aid. She did with him, yeah. And Live Aid was what year? 84? 85. Yeah. And I probably joined a couple of years later. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a real overlap. There was some time in between. Yeah. I think Um, she had left. She might have left. I think singing with him at Live Aid was, she had already left. Uh, She was kind of done a year or two before that. And then Mm -hmm. did Live Aid as like a reunion sort of get back together thing. Right. I didn't know the history of that. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And you sing on Bad Love which is one of my favorite Eric Clapton song.
that period of August and Journeyman and the, the late mid to late eighties Clapton stuff right there. I love those albums a lot. That's good stuff. Yeah, there was some really good stuff. I mean, I think that was one of the first sessions that I did. And I owe that to Katie Kasoon. She had worked with Eric before, I think with Roger Walters on a tour. And so they knew, so, so she was kind of the first call. And bless her, you know, Eric said, well, who else would you recommend? And she recommended me. And then, you know, thanks very much. There it Kate. goes. Um, there it There's goes. the next 12 years of your life. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and she and I were a really tight unit. I mean, we did a lot of other artists as well together mm-hmm. because we just kind of became known as a, as a team. Yeah. And she was a joy. Good. Always an absolute joy. She's back with Eric now. Is she really? Oh, wow. She's yeah. Okay. Unbelievable. Wonderful. Good for her. Just wonderful. Yeah. Um, were you and Katie, the, the you sang on Roll With It with Steve Winwood, right? Yes, me too. And uh, <laughs> so that uh, was that through an Eric connection? Because I know those two go way back. You know what? It could well be. Funny thing uh, about, about this business is you don't always know, true. but that sounds pretty f- feasible to me. Okay. Because Steve would always be like front row yeah. at the Albert Hall, you know, if we were doing gigs, he was always there. Really? And um, yeah, so that, that may well be the connection. Okay. What's uh, what's Steve like to work with? Were you in the room with him, interacting with Steve? Mm, mm, I hear he's definitely. kind of soft-spoken. He's not a, uh, I don't know if boring is the right word. That sounds mean, but just very, uh, does not draw attention to himself. Stays in yeah. the background. I think that's fair. I think that's fair to say. His music really does the talking for yeah. him. Yeah. And wow, does it yeah. ever. But he's not, you know, he's not your typical kind of showman or um, effervescent personality yeah. in that sense. He's, he's very laid back. He's yeah. very lovely. And yeah. I really enjoyed working on that album. Good. By the way, before I, we should talk about the George Harrison tribute show too, which you speak very lovingly about George in in the book. There, I got to admit, there's some, I don't, there's some sexual politics going on among rock stars and their girlfriends and affairs and that it just feels like some people live by a different set of rules and uh i i don't 
we don't have to go too far down that road, but that part just to a regular guy is like, wow, how do people get away with this kind of stuff? But I guess it doesn't matter to them or it's part of the code or something. Yeah, I, I think it is part of the code. And I think there is a rarefied air. Yeah. That mere mortals really, you know, probably don't get to breathe that much. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I was around it for, forever, really. Yeah. And interestingly, being a woman in a man's world, you know, I thankfully, oh God, uh, never had any of the kind of horrendous Me Too stories mm-hmm. to relay. Wow. And I, Again, I'm not quite sure why I got away with it, but I did, and I'm very thankful that I did. Yeah. But, yeah, guys, rock and roll, groupies, women, sex, yeah. drugs. It's kind of what we want from our rock and roll, though, isn't it? Kind of, it kind of is, yeah. It kind of we is. don't really want sanitized, clean no. living. No. Kind of no. I don't know. I wonder what your listeners think. I, I am, too. I, I am, say, too. You know, we live vicariously through that kind of behavior. We do. We do. <laughs> Mere mortals aren't really allowed to do it or get away with it. Yeah, I know. I, mean, I uh, politicians there's, a, there's a couple stories there, you know, so obviously, uh, you know, Eric famously sort of steals Patty Boyd from George Harrison, but they remain good friends. And then on this tour, um, George has an affair with Eric's girlfriend on a tour or something like that. And but in the same sentence, you're saying what a sweet, wonderful guy George Harrison is. And I'm sure he is, but it's just, there's this dichotomy of, you know, extreme black and white in some people in rock and rock stars personality. There's another story, if I remember right, about Mick Jagger stealing Eric's girlfriend, Lori, or something like that. And uh, Carla Brunei. Or Carla, that's it. Woman. That's who it is. Yes, that's it. Carla Brunei, the Carla who goes on to, what does she marry the... Canadian Prime Minister, or whatever it is, uh, the French or the French Prime. That's it. Yes, yes, the French. Yeah, yeah she's. Uh, anyway, it's she, yeah. Fair to say, she had her eye on the prize. Yeah, that's that's what I'm driving at here. Is that there? Yeah. It's no, no disrespect to her. No, 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 no. That's what I'm driving at. Is that there's just certain people that they know they understand their this is uh, their place, I guess, in the food chain, and they don't ask too many questions or get hung up on morals or whatever they just do what they want what goes on in vegas yeah it's very much a different world anyway it is a different world and i think um ultimately it seems like it is the, you know a ball and the best kind of life that you could be living yeah but i think everybody has to uh reassess at some point in their lives mm-hmm. regardless of who you are regardless of what status you've you developed, you know, you you have to kind of consider it and maybe make some changes. Yeah. Either that well, or you'll be pretty lonely. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> you know, it that kind of immortality as a rock star, you have to you have to make a lot of sacrifices a lot of way along the way. A lot of you have to pay the price for that kind of immortality. And some of that yeah. is comes in the w- way of drugs or hurting loved ones or um so true. You know, sun. and there is always a price. There is there a price. Is. You can't yeah. There is, and there so is. it's not. You know, there is a kind of reckoning. I think it's for everybody. You know, yeah. we all have to assess that. So, whereas it looks like the ideal life, I think, um, you know, it yeah. 
it is in some ways, and, and as I say, we kind of like to hear the stories and we live vicariously through that. But there's a lot of pain and yeah. difficulty. You yeah, know, you pay a price when you do that. Yeah, you do. Oh, I was going to mention about the George Tribute concert. My sweet love. Oh, my love. My sweet love. I really want to see you. I really want to be with you. I really want to see you, Lord. But it takes so long, my love. My sweet love. That's an amazing piece of work that lives on. That's another one of those things that gets viewed millions and millions of times on YouTube and everything. I was re-watching the clip of, um, oh, Billy Preston singing My Sweet oh, Lord. And oh I know it's going to choke me up just thinking about it. It's just so beautiful. And what a moment, you know? And it's another, another moment that you get to be a part of. Another pinch me moment. Yeah. Another. And I'm actually kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't really know much about Billy Preston. I didn't really know about his history. I didn't know that he was called the fifth Beatle. Where where was I hiding? I mean, how did I not know that? And I do regret that I didn't spend more time with him. That's definitely something that I've mentioned before to people is that, wow, what a talent, what what a guy. You know, there's some controversy there. There's some, you know, clearly he, yep. yeah, it was uh, difficult. His life was not uh, an easy one. But I wished I'd talked to him and got to know yeah. him. That's what I was thinking in watching that clip, knowing his history of homosexuality and drug abuse and all these kinds of things, his own demons like Eric's or anyone else's that he's bringing to this performance, singing my sweet Lord of all things, you know, he, you can tell the, I mean, so many wonderful black artists come from the church. You can tell that that's where he's coming from. He's got these demons that he, that don't jive with his church upbringing that he's, he's, figuring out his entire life and it ultimately almost kind of brings him down, but the, what a beautiful moment. And you get to be there singing with you. Beautiful him. moment. And, and in a way, had I known more about his history, I would have seen that as maybe a real redemption song yeah. for him, yeah. you know, and, and as you say, yes. going back to church, you know, yes. playing Hammond, like no one else plays. Yeah. Um, I would highly recommend if anybody's not watched that to, 
to not be moved by it. And again, you know, the, the solemnity of the of the occasion, although it wasn't really solemn. Um, I mean, there it's was certainly kind of rehearsals for that. It was celebratory. It was yeah. hugely. But there was a kind of a sense that, oh, that George was there. You know, it was so powerful. And I know it sounds a bit woo-woo, no. but there was a strong presence. He had a strong presence there. And, and I, I remember saying, somebody saying, you know, actually, George would hated this. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean George would have hated this? And they said, because he would have hated the fuss. He would have gone, oh, blimey, you know. <laughs> what are they all doing this for? Let's go home and have a cup of tea, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I got that about his personality. You know, he was he didn't he didn't court that yeah. kind of thing. But it was the most beautiful event to be part of. I mean, Eric was turning musicians away at rehearsals. Musicians like well-known musicians was kind of were arriving at the door and saying, "Any room at the inn? You know, can we play? Can we?" Because that you know the stage is pretty full, as you yeah. can see. Yeah. Um, yeah, it it's a beautiful. beautiful it's and a beautiful largely moment. driven by uh, Olivia, George's wife, who really, really oh, it was her and Eric really uh, put the thing together beautifully, and uh, yeah, she she takes huge credit. Must take okay, huge okay. Tears for Fears are one of my favorite bands ever, and uh, Seeds of Love is a great album. And I believe you mentioned in there that you're singing on. Year of the Knife is one of your favorite things you've ever done. What makes it so? Working with Dolette. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. My girl. Yeah. You know, uh. we've always had a special, special, special relationship from the minute I met her. Yeah. And she actually taught me so much because I was a rookie, you know, on that police tour. She and, and lovely Michelle Cobbs, who was also singing, and Michelle had done a lot of the chic stuff. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, lots and lots of work before the police and, and Dolette's history, you know. But we, Dolette and I just, you know, and she, she, I suppose in a way, a little bit took me under her wing and probably sensed that, you know, there was the rookie in me. And uh-huh. uh, so Year of the Knife, 
uh, she'd moved over to the UK to, to kind of live for a while. I think she lived for six months and we worked together as much as we could during that time. And that particular session came up and I was asked who I'd like to work with. And so um, we went to the Real World Studios, which is Peter Gabriel's place in you know, a city called Bath and uh, had the best time, just the best time. And I think it has a special place in my heart also because I adored working for Roland and Kurt. Really? Uh, Good. Just Good. loved it. Now that was an album that, and the, and the one before that took a long time, yes. a lot of money. In a time where it was getting less fashionable to spend that kind of money, but Roland and Kurt, and Roland in particular, is such a perfectionist, you know, they would do entire tracks with musicians and then bin them. Yep. You know, and, yep. uh, and I think that was Phil Collins. Night, Bill Collins right? plays. Uh, is I know he drums on um, the uh, Woman in Chains uh, with a lead. Is that Adams. him or is that Manu Cachet? Oh, I thought I thought it was maybe I think it was both. I'm not I sure. Uh, it's a good sure. point. Uh, we need somebody to uh, yeah. pick up the album, look at the credits. I should. I uh, I've yeah, had. Sure. That's one of my favorite albums ever, and I've had several people on, like Chris Hughes and Randy Jacobs, who. And Julian yes. Mendelssohn, who played or worked on that album, but yes. um, yeah, was Kurt around much when you were working on it? No. Yeah, that's what I hear. Not in my experience, not by the time yeah. we were doing the backing vocals, he, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding too. It's very much Roland overseeing. That's his vision, and Kurt kind of coming in and out, saying, "I don't like that," or "We should do this," or "We should change yeah. that," making yeah. recommendations. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. And interesting and, you talk about Julian Mendelssohn because Julian was the reason I did this album. Really? How did what yeah. how did Julian factor into that? I thought it was Gary. I thought Julian Gary Langan recommended. Oh, okay. Well, Gary was Gary was there as well, but Julian may have been like second engineer or, or okay. maybe, yeah, I'm not quite sure what again, need to go back and look at the credits. But yeah, that was my link with Julian. Wow. He's yeah. so nice. What a sweet He's man. So nice. I like Julian a lot. He's yeah. A good guy. And then um, you sing on, you're, you're with the Stones during Steel Wheels. Did you just tour with them or do you sing on like Mixed Emotion or wh what do you do on Steel Wheels? Good question. Oh, okay. Memory going. Um, I can't tell you exactly <laughs> what track I sang on. No, I didn't tour with them. Um, okay. They always had Lisa who, okay. I mean, frankly, you'd never need anybody else if you had Lisa Fisher in your band. Right. Um, um, and yeah, she was a kind of a, an, an absolute... Her and Bernard Fowler were the singers that the Stones always used on the record. Okay. Always, always, always. Um, but no, this was a session that I was kind of just called up for oh. one night, okay. ran down, and, and, and it was always wild working for the Stones because... Jagger was always being Jagger, you know. Uh -huh. He was always prancing around the studio and and sort of calling <laughs> various women at various times. And <laughs> listeners can't see, but you're imitating him right there in your chair, doing the whole yeah, like, chicken walk and uh, yeah, looking off to the side. That's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a character, such an yeah. amazing character, and they're the, you know their music. I think their longevity and, and the reason they're just so loved is because they haven't really changed their music since they began. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
And some may not like the fact that they haven't evolved in a drastically different form. But I think they've optimized that sound. They know what they sound good doing and they just keep on doing it. Agreed. You did sing Sex Drive, right? Off of the Flashpoint album? Great too. That's a yeah, good one. Yeah, anyway. it is. Um, do you, okay, a couple quick questions. I, as I mentioned at the beginning, we we touch on sensitively the business side of all of this. I know that you are being whisked away to tour with Eric or living in a box. I love living in a box. Um, I do. I love that song. Those guys. And Richard <laughs> Darbyshire. He was. Yeah. He's a, he's a good songwriter. Um, yes, he is. And uh, and so there's that, but. Are you, um, I mean, are you at a, uh, what's, be as specific as you feel comfortable being about what, how the, the money works on being called in on one of these sessions? Do you have like mm-hmm. a flat fee or mm-hmm. is it by the hour or do you get points if it takes off? How does this work? Sadly, no points. Okay. I'd love to have been on a point of income undone. No That's for sure. And interestingly, it was in the days before people were even credited. Yeah. You know, so nowadays you'd get, if you were doing a step out part like that, you'd probably get a credit, mm-hmm. you know, Duran Duran featuring Tessa Niles or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, it didn't happen so much in those days, so mm-hmm. so that's okay. But, I mean, my name was still on the album and, and that kind of thing. The only time I haven't been credited on an album was on a Cher album. Really? And she didn't put any of the musicians' credits on the album. can't remember which one it was called. Might be it's a man's world. Okay. This is a man's world. But it would be nothing. Nothing without a woman or a girl. Man made the call to take us over the road. Man made the train to carry the heavy load. Man made the electric lights to take us out of the dark. 
There were no musicians credits and that's very rare yeah very very wow. rare because that's you know we started off by saying that's such a calling card i've sure. never ever in the decades that i've been a singer ever had to print a business card yeah true just look <laughs> at the liner notes right you just look at the <laughs> liner notes and they're there so yeah. um so uh, I've lost my train of thought. What the the how the financial aspect of singing backup works, flat fees, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fees, what has it worked? I mean, you know, we have a, an actors' equity, which is a, a our union. We also have a musicians' union as well, but we're essentially covered by the actors' union. Never quite figured that one out, but anyway, and they have rates, but they were actually kind of ridiculous. And more used for string players and brass players mm. because they would charge for every single overdub they did. Say it was a film session and they were overdubbing, they'd get 100% of their original session fee for each part they overdubbed. That was just not workable for producers of records because sometimes I'd be singing, you know, 12, 15 layers of vocals. So if I was charging for every single one, it would have been prohibitive. Sure. So, so you would charge a flat fee per session, and the session was classified as three hours work. Okay. okay. So if it went over the three hours, then it would go into the second session, and you would get paid again. Okay. You. But most most producers would would try and you know get as much done within that one session. But you know sometimes things went on and on and on. Okay. Um, I could be wrong, but it sounds like there's a, the possibility of making more money off of a jingle than a rock song is likely, right? I mean, I've, I've talked to people who have been in the jingle world and they, there's this one guy in particular, there was an ad that ran every Christmas here, maybe still does. It was a Budweiser ad with these Clydesdale horses tromping through the snow. Okay. And, uh, and there's just a small chorus of people going Ooh, in the background. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I had a guest on his name. Was What's that? Was he one of those? He was one of those. Yes. And he made bank every year because that ad ran every Christmas like crazy. And so he would make thousands of dollars for the next like decade every time that ad, that ad ran, you know, yeah. just for yeah. being one of the ooze in the background. Almost oh, oh, definitely. And again, it doesn't, you know, it's not always um, commensurate with how much you've sung. Right. You know, it could be that tiny little one line and you get yeah. paid thousands yeah. of um, I uh, there was a, a jingle that was taken for Budweiser from the Steve Winwood album. I, 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 I had this in my notes. I'm so glad I skipped over this. I'm so glad you're bringing this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I had exactly, it on my notes. Yeah.
and they kind of lifted the track and, and, and put it uh, on to be used as a jingle. And that was highly lucrative. Yes. Yeah. Much more so than the session fee originally. Yeah. 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 Wasn't it like, uh, Don't You Know What the Night Can Do? Yes, it was. You're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. That's and it. Now, there is, um, and this, you know, really has only come into play. I need to check when PPL came in, but there is something called PPL now in uh -huh. the UK and Europe. And it is a small uh, percentage that musicians who played on the original tracks will make. Oh. From music that is played uh, in a gym. Or, yeah. So it's, it's nothing to do with the writer's mm -hmm. royalties or the artist's royalties. These are uh, royalties that are played basically essentially where music is performed in a public space. Okay. That makes sense. Or on the radio. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, thank you very much, PPL. Um, yeah. You know, that That's still great. continues to, to roll in, and I'm forever grateful. Uh, for that because yeah sometimes the session fees were not very big yeah yeah that's great um by the way before we forget i wanted to ask another one of the patreon supporters ian g sharp now i don't know if this is going to go very far but he's originally from ilford <gasps> where you grew up right my homeboy now he my, i think if i remember correctly in the book you move by the time you're about six years old is that right? Okay. So his question was really around um, Ilford. He says Ilford was among several towns in the area that Brit funk emerged from. The Ooh. Lacey Lady was one club that was a scene. So he was curious if any of the music uh, in that from that area was, you know, inspirational for you in developing your career. But if you left that young, maybe it didn't. I don't know. That's the thing. I'm sure it would have been. Highly okay. influential, um, but because I, I I moved when I was about five. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. <laughs> the okay. only music I was influenced by was my my parents' kind of South Pacific album, and yes. um, and having said that, they had some great albums as well. They like the Carpenters. And, I was going to say like you that. said Karen Carpenter was your heroine in there. I love the Carpenters. I mean. Karen's one of these people that I feel like as the years go on, she gets more and more appreciated. Mm -hmm which is great because she deserves oh, that. I, what I about Karen more. do you love so much? Well, I was drawn to those layered vocals. The lushness of those vocals just, you know, moved something in me, even as a child. Yeah. I loved it. And I wanted, to, I really wanted to know how it was put together as well. Mm -hmm. You know, what were the elements that made it sound like that? Yeah. Um, and of course her voice was just... Just velvety, beautiful contr control. I mean, she's she was also a fantastic drummer, as I'm sure. Yes, was, uh, very much so. So accomplished. Yep. And her brother, well, just, you know, it. sometimes the stars align and there's that talent that comes out. And, and that's a kind of a little bit of the thing I miss about certain artists these days is that, you know, you don't know who they are, even if you've listened to, eight bars you're not quite sure which artist it is because there's a little bit more I mean I love pop don't get me wrong I love pop pop is all about sort of homogenized sound but you know when you turned on the radio within four bars you knew it was the Carpenters yeah you know even less sometimes you know you knew it was Stevie those artists 
are a little bit harder to come by now. True. So true. And I do love the music today. Don't I, I'm not an old fart. No, I got it. In, in that sense. Um, yeah. but, but I just think there's that aspect to yeah. great artists, recognizable. Yeah. I would totally agree with you on that. Um, now we should, okay. It seems like kind of your last big hurrah was with Robbie Williams. And, uh, I know, as you know, he's one of those people who is gigantic over there and not as big a deal over here. Yeah. And, um, but I've, again, I've talked to some people who've worked with him and just have nothing but great things to say about what a funny, lovable guy he is. And it sounds like you feel the same way. Totally. A hundred times over. He was a delight to work for. Just the most generous, actually. Very generous. Um, and, And... mindful cognizant perhaps of his of the transience of pop and he was very grateful to be where he was and he didn't take it for granted and you always got that sense that he knew how lucky he was yeah which is a lovely quality in someone you know that doesn't yes he has that kind of cheeky chappy arrogance in his performance because that's his persona but as a person he's not like that Oh, wow. He's, he's lovely. And I, I had a wonderful time working with him. That's really, great. Really, really totally enjoyed it. He, uh, you writing about him, I've never liked or disliked because I only knew a few songs that made it over here that I like. Yeah. Um, I like some of them a lot, um, but I've never dug that deep. But after reading the, how lovingly you talk about him, I thought I need to get to know this guy better and pay a little bit more attention. Because he sounds like a really wonderful guy. And I was really impressed. He, So I didn't even know this was a thing until I read Jeffrey Lee Campbell's book that at the end of tours, often the artist will bestow sort of a cash gift as like a going away present or whatever. And I guess I guess Jeffrey Stings wasn't very big at the end of, for Jeffrey anyway, at the end of that tour. But it sounds like Robbie treated you really well. So well. Really? So well. No, he's honestly... I can't, I can't say enough about him. He was so much fun to be with. Yeah. So, so much fun. He, he made everything fun. He allowed you to have fun too. You, you, you never got the feeling that you had to be on your absolute sort of best behavior around him. Wow. He was very relaxed. And um, the whole crew, he had a wonderful manager who sadly passed away, uh, David Enthoven, who was divine and took Robbie on when Robbie was struggling because he came, Robbie, your listeners probably, some of them know that he came from a bank called Take That. So Robbie's been a star in this part of the world since he was 16 years old. And the world watched him grow up and fall down and get back up again and fall down again and have all sorts of trials and tribulations. And he definitely was had fallen when David Enthoven picked him up and kind of helped him reinvent himself. And boy, did he ever reinvent himself? He just, he did so well. But I think that's also a lovely thing about Robbie too, is that he, he knows that it could end very yeah. suddenly, you know? Um, so he's, he's mindful. Yeah. He's a great guy. And I love his stuff. I mean, working with him was always so much fun on stage. Oh, he's just such a showman. If no one's uh, had the pleasure of uh, watching him watch at a concert called Nebworth. Sure. 
which is was one of the biggest, probably the zenith of, of Robbie's career, really doing that show. And um, and he's just fantastic, you know. Love or hate his music, you know, he's just a great performer. Good. Okay. I'm going to pay more attention to Robbie Williams going. Forward, <laughs> sure. Yeah, he tried to 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 make it in the states, but I think they just the states didn't have that history with him. As I say, you know, we had the history of this former band that he was in called Take That. And we grew up with him and right. watched him and grow up. And so we had that fondness for him. And when he became a solo artist, we were right behind him. But I don't think the States had that. So they just kind of didn't get him. Yeah, yeah. You sing on Rock DJ, right? Yeah, that's a great song. <laughs> She's dancing, folks. <laughs> Me with the torso, kicking with the torso. Boys getting high, and the girls even more so. Raise your hands if you want the man. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Oh, my favorite! Wow, I love that. My That's great. That's great. Okay, um, boy. I mean, there's. I feel like that's about <laughs> half of what I had written this, down this, here. This, are you still with us? Are you still I, with us? I know, I know. Um, anyway. Bill and I are just talking into the wee small hours. Yeah, we're just going to keep doing this for a while. Yeah. If people want to join in, they can. It, it, yeah, uh, we might even do tomorrow as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay, a couple last questions. Number one, does partying like a rock star after concerts ever get old? Because I got to admit, that part sounds kind of exhausting to me. It seems like every night after a show... <laughs> Everybody gets together and they party and they dance all night at a club or they do their drugs or they hook up or whatever. And that seems like that would be fun for a little while. And then it would just be like, oh, I just want to get a good night's sleep. I'm going to go back to my hotel room. Yeah. If that woman movie. keeps banging on my door, if she doesn't stop banging on my door, I'm going to, yeah. John, it never gets old. Really? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> I think it is part of the life yeah. and part of the reason you want to go on tour because you're allowed to behave that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Boy. putting it bluntly. Yes. It, it's Boy. expected. No one's going to say, oh, shit, you had a bitch drink last night. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, no one's going to call you on it. Uh, having said that, I was, of course, Mother Teresa. <laughs> Never did any... Partying? No, I'm kidding. I did. I did my share, but I was also always mindful that I was an employee, that I was there to do a job of work. So if that, and also being a woman, yeah. kind of mindful yeah. of knowing that you can't mess up. Yeah, yeah, makes you know, sense. In the same way that a guy possibly could. Probably right. I mean, there's yeah. a classic story about Steve Ferroni. Steve Ferroni was <laughs> a notoriously uh, well-known uh, party girl. He was right. the, if your listeners aren't, aren't sure, he was the drummer with Clapton for a long time. But he was also with so many other bands. Gosh, Duran Duran. Uh, and up with, with Tom Petty before he died. He was That's right. Yep. part of the Heartbreakers. And... Um, so there's a classic story about Steve, and he doesn't mind me telling it because I told it in the book, um, about how when we were on tour somewhere, I can't remember where we were, it may have been in the South somewhere, and Steve had like a big party that night and just partied hard, 
and was for some reason thrown in jail. And he was allowed the one phone call and he called Eric's manager, Roger. And But instead of speaking to Roger, he left a message because I guess he called me in the middle of the night or something. And the message was, nobody knows <laughs> the trouble I see. <laughs> and he basically just sang. Oh, and he was spiritual. To, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's classic. So sometimes wherever um, Steve is in the world, he will just send me a little text or a little <laughs> video. Walking through an airport and he'll be singing, nobody knows the product. <laughs> so, yeah, bless. You know, as I said before, we don't yeah. get too sanitized, do we? That's we true. we want right. to look at these people and go, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, that that's life. true. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Um, one other thing I kind of skipped over regarding ABC, you sing on When Smokey Sings. And yeah. if I remember correctly, we're not featured in the video. That sparked something that has since been changed, right? What your efforts changed things. Tell us about it. Oh, John, I wish that were true. Oh, I thought <laughs> I thought it did. No, no. sadly, sadly. Um, again, another session I sang with Dolette McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, you can hear the, you two clear as day at the very beginning yeah, of that song. Can yeah. you really? And yeah. another lady called Miriam Stockley, who is an extraordinary session singer as well. Yeah, we did the session, really enjoyable. I think it might have been Bernard Edwards co-producing. I may be wrong, but I think that's the case. Anyway, fabulous session, great song, and I think the song was quite big in the US, actually. It was. I'm a big ABC fan, yes. Yeah, yeah, they're a fabulous group. Um, and then shortly afterwards, they began the, of the release of the single, they began to do the promotion. And um, I, you know, I had a couple of people calling me saying, I've just heard you singing on Top of the Pops or you know, whatever the latest uh, TV show was. And, and there were other girls miming to your voice. And this was something that had begun to be the norm. And from an artistic standpoint, I get it. Before that, bands in this country had been bound to use the session musicians in the visuals that they had used on the record, in the recording. And um, they didn't always artistically or aesthetically want to do that. 
So, and they had, in this particular case for, for ABC, they had a couple of girls who looked, you know, a couple of models um, who looked amazing, but they were miming. And I, I took enormous umbrage uh, yeah. to this at first. Yeah. I've taken a different, I have a different, slightly different opinion of it now. I must say that we were still getting paid for it. True. Okay. So as session musicians, we were still making a payment, but we weren't being, so in other words, somebody else was getting credit. Mm-hmm. Now, where I took real issue with it was when other singers were miming. Ah, uh, I see. That's what it was. Because okay. that kind of really rubbed me yeah. up the wrong way. And, and so many other singers I knew felt the same way that, oh, hang on, you know, this is not a model or a dancer to do this anymore. This is an actual singer who maybe using this as a credit to get right. other work kind of right. thing. So, so that kind of irked a bit. But it, essentially it was something we tried to fight with the union. And I did go to the union uh, with other people, and tr- but the, the genie was already out the bottle by this point. And the record companies wanted the freedom to use whoever they wanted in the visuals. So, yeah, we, we lost, unfortunately. Okay. Shoot. I, th- I was under the impression that it, went your direction okay no and, and in a way i get now that you know, bands can use whoever they want yes they shouldn't be bound to have to use the people that they well wouldn't that have committed you and dolette to basically a promotional tour then as well you'd have to perform every time they sing that song at top of the pops or a morning show or actually a, yeah i don't know maybe that would have i mean i'm sure you would have done it but maybe it's just easier to grab couple of mimers when Tess is off, you know, she's on tour with Eric Clapton. 100%. No, you're Whatever. quite right. And I've never really thought about it from that point of view, but you're absolutely I don't know. Right. Just, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, look, there's at least a dozen people that I wanted to ask you about that we didn't even get around to, but um, I will ask one more thing. The very last credit or the very first credit on your website is with Chaz Jenkel, who I have had on the show too. I love Chaz Jenkel. And one of my favorite Chaz songs is Glad to Know You. Do you sing oh. on you sing on Glad to Know You? Yes, I do. I, I love that just, song. I was chatting with um, Chaz the other day because sadly the engineer uh, who engineered all of those kind of early Chaz Jankel albums just passed away. Oh. And, um, and I was just saying to Chaz, I cut my teeth on those tracks. I, I've never done anything before. They were the first things I've ever done and ever got a credit for. Yeah. And I was so grateful to have worked on those. And I love Chaz. Yeah. Oh, what a talented guy. He, uh, totally agree. Uh, he just. Yes. Yes. Oh, I lo- so and there is- sweet. And it did really well in the, in the US clubs, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was he, really uh, healthy. He, it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago. And at, for my birthday, I treated myself to a box set of his CDs that recently came out. And so I'm kind of excited because his stuff is hard to find. You might find like a vinyl or whatever, but there's not on CD or anything. And a box set of his albums came out recently on CD. Yeah, I I did see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, glad to know you. And another one called Number One. Yes.
I love that song. That's uh, that was in a movie called uh, Real Genius, which is maybe my favorite movie yes. of all time. Oh yes. <laughs> that's exactly. Oh my yeah. God, we are going, we are going down memory lane here because this must yes. have been like early eighties, very early eighties. Yep. That's it. And there's a clip of Chaz singing "Glad to Know You" on some <laughs> show, and it is <laughs> the silliest thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Chaz is dancing. Whoa, that's that's, that's something else. And, the, and it was funny. Because, <laughs> what did you say about that? Well, he was so embarrassed and he would say, I guess he's in these really tight black pants and he's wearing like a fur coat. Yeah. And there's a couple of parts where, yes. And then there's a couple of parts where he's like kind of shaking his butt and it's the camera is showing him shaking his butt. And he, I think he told me if I remember right, that Maurice White of Earth, Wind and Fire was in the front row of the show and he's dying because Maurice White is one of his heroes and he feels so dumb like shaking his booty on the, for the camera in front of Maurice White. That's, oh, that's I think funny. if I remember right that's what's going oh, on. Oh that's funny that's wonderful that's right and there were three girls miming to me. Really? Yeah they needed to get three they needed to get three to <laughs> that is great <laughs> yeah oh it's funny oh but I love Jess he's super talented good good I love him too well uh, Tessa I thank you for talking with me. If you can't tell, there's just, I could go on for hours. There is so much fun stuff that means the world to me that you had a hand in making special. And I'm so glad that I got to chat with you and I love your book. It's so fun. Everything anyone would ever want to know is in this book. And so thank you for chatting with me. It means so much. Well, thank you so much for asking and loved all the questions. And maybe we could do a part two. Hey, I would could, love to do a part two. I could talk a glass eye to sleep, basically. You know, <laughs> I could just go on and on. So, you know, anytime, John, I've loved it. Okay, I'm going to so take much. you up on that because literally <laughs> there's still a whole other list of things to talk about. All right, there you have it. Tessa Niles, the best. And guys, I'm serious. Backtrack is the book. It's an easy read. It's a, it's a wonderful, entertaining read as well. Plus, if you can't tell, she's like the sweetest lady alive. In fact, I shouldn't admit this, but after we were done recording, I was, you guys know my dad passed away a few months ago, and I was kind of feeling it that day, and she let me kind of vent on her some of my feelings and frustrations and emotions that I was having on that particular day. I'll never forget that. Thank you, Tessa, for just being a listening ear for an extra five or 10 minutes. What You don't know me. You didn't have to listen to me talk like that, but you did, and I appreciate it. We're closing it out with the great Chaz Jankel. Glad to know you. And if you haven't seen the video, I've posted it on Facebook a couple of times. Go on YouTube, type in Chaz Jankel, uh, Jankel, glad to know you. And there's a video that's one of the most awkward performance videos ever of Chaz singing this at a show. And yeah, there's two or three black ladies singing, mouthing the backup, which is obviously just singing Tessa's part. Anyway, it is so funny and awkward. I love Chaz, by the way. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Thank you, buddy. Oh, I forgot to tell you, the teaser for next week is we're talking to a a early 80s one-hit wonder whose only song, it's not one of those ubiquitous things you hear all the time, but when you do hear it, you love it. And he 
did, he put out three or four albums at the time that were so good, and then he went on into songwriting and production and stuff like that. That's who's coming up next week, okay? You guys know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And again, thank you so much, Dolette McDonald, for helping make this happen. I really, really appreciate it. You guys are the best. All right? Thanks, folks. <laughs>